When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi everyone, it's Imran Larker of Options Insight. Thanks Real Vision for having me again back on the platform. And today I'm going to be speaking to Brent Kachuba of Spot Gamma. So for those of you those of you who trade options in the market, this is going to be a great treat for you because we're going to be talking a lot about Gamma and the Greeks and market positioning. But for those who don't really know what sort of impact that has on markets these days, hopefully this will be quite enlightening too. So Brent. Welcome. And, Thanks, Imran. Uh, please, please tell us uh, a bit about your background. Sure. So I've been a uh, broker uh, in options and equities for roughly 20 years. Uh, I'm sorry to say it's been that long already. Uh, in, in options specifically for about 15 now. I worked at a couple banks, uh, namely Credit Suisse and Bank of America. And then I worked at a market-making uh, shop on the broker-dealer side called Wolverine Trading. Uh, and then in the last year, year and a half, I've been running, uh, founded and started Spot Gamma, uh, which does options, which analyzes the options market and positioning in the options market. And from that, we can derive all sorts of various trading levels. From my days on bank trading floors, you know, I've always been very interested in market positioning, particularly to help understand what short-term price moves might be. So maybe for the for the audience's benefit, could you tell us, you know, what we mean by dealer gamma? And how does that gamma positioning, why does it matter for markets? Yeah, absolutely. So dealer gamma, we can think of as hedging requirements for market makers and dealers. And I'm going to kind of use those words somewhat interchangeably throughout the interview. But those are generally the people that are on the other side of customer order flow and options. So you know, when you or I go place a trade or a large hedge fund goes and place an options trade, there's usually a dealer or market maker on the other side of that trade, as you know. And how they hedge can really determine, uh, in our view, how much the market can move, so how much volatility there is, and then also key levels that are we essentially call support and resistance levels uh, based on those hedging flows. So dealer gamma, again, is just the hedging requirement of, of these you know, bank and market-making entities. So, so, but so in general, like, what do you see like, when dealers are particularly long gamma? What does that mean for markets? Right. So there's really two ways we classify this as the as a as if dealers are in a long gamma position or a or a short or negative gamma position. And what you see is when dealers have a positive gamma position, what happens is that usually causes vol to constrict. It causes the amount of market movement to constrict. Uh, so instead of having say a two percent trading range when we have positive gamma, maybe we only have a you know fifty or seventy five basis point you know trading range on the day. And then conversely, if you have a negative gamma dealer position, volatility can be much larger. You know, the estimated vol on the day can be, you know, one and a half to 2% on the day. So uh, it's essentially the way that they're hedging can either expand or contract volatility, uh, depending on that negative, uh, positive or negative gamma position. I mean, I, I've certainly been on the other side of that where I've been caught with big short gamma positions. And 
it's not a nice place to be. And you're right. <laughs> I mean, it definitely can impact what you do, where you're actually doing trades that you just have to do, not necessarily what you want to do, right? So, right. Um, but how do you think the options market has changed over the last few years? Do you see a notable increase in the impact that these option flows and positioning are actually having on the underlyings? And, and does it differ between indices and single stocks? Yeah, so, I mean, we've been modeling this S&P index, which has sort of historically been the bed, uh, bread and butter, excuse me, of, of the gamma trade or gamma analysis. And, you know, the S&P is, has trillions of dollars, you know, tied to the S&P 500 and pension funds and the like. And it's a huge options complex. So for, you know, years, you've been able to model where these big strikes are, right, where the big open interest is in the S&P 500 and, and kind of predict market movement from that. And what we've really seen in the last six months in particular, especially the first quarter of uh, 2021, was single stock options positions have exploded. I mean, everyone at this point has seen those charts. And as a result, the impact of the hedging requirements in those single stocks has, has kind of been off the charts. Uh, and so, you know, historically, it's been the S&P, which is still kind of a, a big market to watch. But, you know, single stock options volumes and positions have absolutely exploded in the last, you know, six months, you know, in particular. And are there any specific names where you kind of see regular pinning effects into expiry or things like that that you're that you're kind of monitoring? Yeah. So uh, the S and P, as I mentioned, and the and the Nasdaq, particularly QQQ, is like, you know, those are day in and day out. We monitor those, and then. It's interesting because a lot of the single stock positions are kind of transitory. You'll see the hot stock will come in, you know, like maybe it's a Wall Street bets name or a name that has earnings, you know, um, like GameStop, obviously, and AMC and all those names from this uh, from this uh, earlier this year. Uh, but, you know, like Apple is one where day in and day out, you know, Apple has a massive options position. And I think so much of how Apple moves uh, is related to that huge options position. Tesla is another one that always has a massive position. Uh, and so, you know, there's various reasons for that consistent order flow in, in those names. Uh, but you can see these positions really build uh, and then other names will get, again, very popular and become very trendy. And then they kind of, you know, die down and, and uh, get quiet again. Something that I'm curious about is in your model where you kind of look at this positioning, how do you know which way dealers are? Because obviously you're trying, to you're trying to define the dealer positioning. So right. how do you know if dealers have bought or sold the options? Because you can see the open interest on the screen on an option and on a strike, but how do you know which way the dealers are? Yeah, and that's a great question. And we make some assumptions for our index and our single stock products. And we create these models around, you know, where these gamma and these op this open interest is positioned. And that is all an input into our models. So what we can tell is that Yes, there is a base assumption of how you know the the deals are positioned, right? Uh, but what is kind of a more important factor is where exactly those large positions are located, right? So it's not so much the balance of is it all bought or sold to open, but where exactly do those strikes exist and where are they moving and shifting around? I see, I see. Uh, but what is the general assumption? Is the general assumption in index, for example? that dealers are short puts and long calls? Yeah, so in the in the single stock space, that's our base assumption. Uh, and then we have some different uh, other inputs into our model that help to make some adjustments around that. And then we're obviously modeling, you know, there's volatility inputs in there and and, uh, and things like that can help us gauge, um, you know, the model and its veracity. So uh, you're constantly, as with anything, uh, 
testing, retesting, you know, making adjustments uh, and and looking to reflect, obviously, the most accurate position that you can. Right. So it's kind of like a you're looking at the model and you're judging those assumptions. If the model isn't kind of helping you identify or you're not accurate in your predictions of the price action, then maybe that means those assumptions are slightly flawed and you give less weight to a certain underlying, whereas another underlying that's respecting your levels, maybe you think that assumption is probably pretty accurate. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's right. And and there are times when, you know, you can, uh, where you can understand, you know, your model and your position, right? And, and how accurate you think that is, right? And I think the key with any model is understanding sort of, you know, where are the areas of your model that may have some, uh, require some adjustments or have some exposure that you need to be aware of, right? Um, so you understand what your model is and you understand, you know, where the model might run into some trouble, right? And can I identify those points and then bring in some other inputs to help me, uh, one, identify those points that, you know, maybe weaknesses, uh, but two, um, make some adjustments, right? Uh, and, and change some of those base assumptions, you know, to, to reflect something that's maybe more accurate in the market. And, you know, with the S&P, we find that the levels work just incredibly well, and we don't often change those assumptions. Single stocks, obviously, there's a whole lot more, you know, players with, you know, uh, different ideas uh, and different obligations uh, in terms of hedging and the like. Um, so you have to be, you have to make some of those adjustments a little bit more often. Uh, for instance, in Apple, you know, I think it's a lot of call overriding that's taking place. So you need to look at Apple in one specific light. Uh, but then like a, a name like uh, Clovis or some of these other kind of hot Wall Street bets types names, um, you know, those guys are generally buying calls. And so you can uh, change some adjustments into your model there and look at that stock a little bit differently. So speaking of your levels, so do you want to talk through a little bit about what are these magic levels that you're, that you're coming up with? Because you've got, you've got various names that you give them. So if you yeah. guys run us through what you mean by cool, well, you, you, you tell me, what are the levels? How, how are you coming up with them? And what do they tell us about likely price action or, or what we're thinking about markets? Yeah, so it, it's, it's actually kind of an interesting story. You know, so the, at the top of the show uh, or interview that there's a lot of people who may not understand the options market and, and gamma and some of those intricacies and, and some of those models. Uh, but it's such an important uh, influence. It has such important influence and impact on the market now that I don't think you could ignore options positioning. Uh, for example, if you just owned, I mean, GameStop, not to talk about GameStop, but if you just owned GameStop as an investor this summer and didn't pay attention to options and kind of ignored that, uh, you, you'd be missing one of the main drivers of, of the stock. Uh, and there's, you know, a ton of other examples we could name there of these, you know, gamma squeeze type names where you need to know that the options market is really driving the name that your investors are trading. Um, and so what's interesting about that is we found that really some of our biggest subscribers and our biggest, you know, members of spotgamma.com are people that just trade stock or trade features and they just want to know what the levels are, right? They just want to know where the big open interest is, uh, how the gamut landscape is is changing. And that is because options flows are tied to where these big open interest areas lie. And it's not really just big open interest, it's really the big gamma areas, right? Because if you again equate gamma to hedging flow, well if you have a big gamma area, that means there's big hedging flow there. And just to think about the options market, you know, I think that hedging flow is one of the biggest components or, or, or they're really one of the biggest traders in the market as a whole. Uh, because if you have a pension fund or somebody that wants to come in and, and place a big order, you know, once their order is done, uh, 
uh, they're out of the market, right? But the market makers and dealers are required to hedge all day long. Uh, just they have to hedge their gamma and their delta, right? So as the market moves down, they need to do you know buy or sell, and as the market shifts back, they need to you know sell or buy, right? And that flows all day long, day in and day out, um, and it you know grows in size based on options position and, and contracts again. So that's what creates these levels uh, is where these hedging flows show up. So yeah, so give us an example of the level. So there's a level you guys call the call wall. Right. Yeah. What does that mean? What, what can I? Th- what does that mean to me intuitively? If I'm a trader, should I be expecting markets to kind of run out of steam if you're approaching that wall? Like, yeah. You know, is it a metaphorical wall in that we can't really go, <laughs> go through it, or what, what is that? Yeah. It's, it's uh. So so a lot of people who you know are new to the options market um have a hard time sort of under they hear Greeks right and their eyes kind of glaze over and they go so we sort of named these things with things like the call up because it's just much easier to stick as opposed to like you know the largest positive gamma strike right so we put these kind of funny names on there and uh and it helps they're descriptive obviously as you can tell like a wall is this area of the market where we think is major resistance uh, that's where our models detect kind of dealer hedging is really going to start to put a cap on the market uh, and, and kind of pin things down. Uh, and, and the base way that we look at the market, just for some edification, is, is we, we assume that all positions in, in the S&P 500 or really anything that we look at is our position, right? And then we run a risk model based on that, and we can find out where the pressure points are, right? So we say, okay, if we own every option in the S&P, right, all the open interest is on our sheets, where do we hedge, right? Where's the resistance? Where's the support? Where does our, uh, where's our major risk points, right? Uh, and based on that, is sort of what we reflect to, uh, to to people that watch our models. So you, you mentioned you're, you're trying to kind of weight the gamma position. And we, we know that shorter dated options close to the money are the ones that have the highest gamma. So right. are you only looking at like the front month worth of expiries because that's where all the gamma kind of is? Or do you look at longer expiries? Like, like how, how do you do that? Yes. Yeah, so, so our models look at all available open interest and – the reason that we just leave it looking at all open interest and not only consider sort of the front months is we consider gamma as the waiting tool. So as you mentioned, gamma is highest for at the money strikes, but also near term expirations. So if our model includes, say, a December, you know, 2024, 500 strike put, you know, something really far to the money and long dated, the gamma of that option is going to be it's hardly even going to register in the model, right, because it's so far to the money and so far away in time. Uh, so we just let gamma do that kind of waiting for us. Uh, but we want to miss some position that could be relevant, right? That's just a touch outside the model. Um, you know, that could still impact flows, especially if the market, you know, makes a big move. Yeah, for people who actually are your subscribers, there's other stuff your model does, right? Like look at Vanna and Charm and other second orders. And I suppose exactly. those, other, those other expiries, if those options are way out of the money, they might have quite a lot of those other properties on them. So that will kind of all help in your in your kind of calibration, right? Yeah, and so like exactly. So if you have let's say a, a really deep in the money call, right, or or some very large deep in the money call position that is closed, right? Uh, if that gets closed on this Friday, you know they didn't hold it till expiration, and you miss that, you know that could be a component of what is driving the market, right? Because those deep in the money options would give you a big delta position. Um, so you kind of want to be aware of how all that stuff changes uh, and, and that really entire dynamic of the market. I mean, that point about in the money options, I think very pertinent because I remember you you saying to me offline, 
that last year's sell-off in March. You know, you noticed that straight after that March expiry, you guys have been tracking it and that, you know, you saw a big change in the market. And it, it was no coincidence that it, that, that it kind of happened around expiry, right? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. So the, the high of the, uh, of the February 2020, kind of right before the crash, that was actually the Monday after the, the February monthly expiration. So, you know, mid-February, you know, the third Friday of every month is where we have the big monthly expirations. So the, the February high was the Monday after the expiration. So the idea is that a whole bunch of options positions expired on that weekend. And then we had some bad news around, you know, energy and COVID and the like. And that really sent things spiraling down. Uh, and what's interesting about that is when you have these big expirations, all these hedging flows that are in place go away, right? Because these options have expired. So that really loosens the market up. We talked about you know, how dealers can impact volatility. When big expirations happen, uh, the hedging flows change and that can let the market sort of move more, right? And freeze things up. So we had the, we had the February expiration where the market just tanked after that. And then the low, the March low, as you mentioned, was the Monday after the March expiration. And mm-hmm. if you looked at the options positioning, there were hundreds of thousands of very deep in the money puts that expired in uh, on the March expiration. Uh, and so if you think about that, if, if market makers and dealers are short these deep in the money puts, they have to short futures to hedge themselves out, right? So when the March expiration comes around, all of those options expire. Those are all gone. And the dealers are sitting there with a giant short hedge that they don't need anymore. So, so what do they do? Well, they, they buy that hedge back and the market just had this you know, kind of explosion uh, off that bottom of, of the March expiration. And it may well be that, you know, that, that is the initial trigger to the rally. But yeah. then it becomes a bit self-fulfilling, right? Market rallies, bowl starts to come down, people get more confident, that brings more buying and it and it starts to snowball, right? Whereas exactly. had that expiry not been there, maybe that initial trigger for the rally might not have been there or not particularly on that date, basically, right? So right, yeah. I mean, all so much of this is a feedback loop, right? When 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 ball is rising, volatility is rising, you know, people get scared put values increase, which causes dealers to short more stock, which gets people more nervous. They buy more puts, which dealers have to hedge by shorting and the thing snowballs. And then, you, like you said, you have this event, the options expiration, which causes an unwind. And then suddenly dealers are buying back their shorts, volatility's cr- you know, getting crushed, which all other put positions that are getting destroyed because vol's getting crushed and the market's going higher, which causes this reflective, uh, reflexive, excuse me, feedback loop in the other direction and, and drives the market straight back higher. So that's kind of the Vanna, you know, uh, component to some of the things that we mo- monitor where, you know, volatility is going up and down and that changes how much hedging is required for, for the options uh, dealers. That brings me on to my next question. Like, so do you recalibrate the model on a daily basis for changes in implied vol and for changes in open interest? So you're taking into account all the daily options activity on those on the strikes, on the whole yeah. surface, and any changes in implied vol, which may or may not affect the dealer's delta hedge requirements and things like that. Yeah, I mean, you absolutely have to, right? Because, right. you know, as you know, if the market goes down, you know, volatility almost always goes up, right? The VIX is going to spike when the market drops. Mm-hmm. And if you don't incorporate that, if you don't look at that effect, uh, your estimates of hedging, are going to be completely different, right? If you don't 
move IV implied vol up as the market goes down, uh, you're, you're going to miss out on a lot of sort of what the hedging impact could be, right? And, and, and your volatility estimates are going to be off. Uh, so, you know, as you know, uh, in options, you know, that implied vol just moving can shift things so much, the price spot doesn't even have to have to do anything, right? So it's really, there's kind of the, there's price volatility and time. Those are the kind of the three components that you really need to uh, to, to obviously play with as an options trader. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. So, c- can we talk a bit more about the the, the gamma flip point or, or the volatility trigger point that you guys kind of mark out on your, because at the moment, you know, I've been reading your recent reports and you've been saying on the S&P, for example, it's somewhere around that 4150 level, right? So yeah. what does that mean? What does that mean for us in layman's terms? So if the S&P, if something makes the S&P sell off a bit and we start approaching that 4150, what are we looking for? What does it mean for us? Right, right. So, we talked at the start of this positive and negative gamma concept and, and the way that he, you hedge positive gamma and, and as a, as a, as the teacher here, you're probably better off uh, <laughs> explaining this, but when, when you have a positive gamma position as an option trader, you're hedging against the market, right? So as the market goes up, you're going to sell futures. And as the market goes down, you're going to buy futures, right? And you're just going to keep kind of doing that. And that's your positive gamma trade. So if you think about that as market as a whole, when the market's going up and we have a positive gamma dealer position, they're selling futures as the market goes up. And then as the market sells off, they're buying back. That's what kind of caps the range of the day, the trading range and kind of caps volatility. When you have a negative gamma position, dealers are going to start trading with the market. So if the market starts to sell off, then dealers are going to have to start shorting, right? Shorting futures as their hedge. Mm-hmm. And so if we can identify the point at which dealers go from this sort of suppressing volatility and positive gamma and their position flips to a negative gamma position, then we can possibly identify where volatility is really going to take off, right? So we put this level every day out, which estimates where the the gamma flip point is with the idea that if the market breaks that level, market makers are going to start shorting futures and that can really expand, you know, volatility and make the market drop, right? And that's really what the general concept is there. Um, it's an acceleration point. It's like it's a, yeah, it's a level. It's like a trap door, maybe where you know that's exactly. the floor to the market. But if it goes through, then you just kind of gap through it, basically, and you yeah, and that evolves. And that ties to that feedback loop concept, where you know once you break that level, right, and dealers start shorting. One, you lost the component of someone helping to support the market. Who I think is generally there to dealers are generally there to support the market, uh, but that then volatility usually spikes, and then you get that again that feedback loop. Oftentimes, uh, where put values you know skyrocket, people get scared and hedged, and you can have these really kind of you know violent shifts lower. So do do I mean how do your clients use these levels? Like do they like I, I don't know. I'm speaking from a trader's perspective, right? So what you're telling me speaks to me and says, should I be buying weekly put options with a strike just below the vol trigger? Because that's where I get the most bang for my buck, right? Like, is that, is that kind of how people use them or like what, what do they do with these levels? I mean, there, there's, we have 
guys with all sorts of different strategy guys and girls of all different kinds of strategies there, you know, there's, there's people who are selling, you know, same day options. There are people who literally just, they own their 401k long stock and they'll just keep owning that until that sort of vol trigger level gets broken. Right. Uh, with the idea that that is the, that is the high risk area. And so there's a whole bunch of different things that, that you can do. And I think what sort of is most useful is understanding whether volatility is going to stay in, a, in this tight range and you have support, which is a positive gamma position, or you know, are we in this negative gamma environment? And as a trader, you know, if dealers are positive gamma, that means that you can short gamma often. And I'm making you know, some blanket assumptions here. But so I would look to sell options. I'd play shorter term options. You know, you're trying to do that kind of thing. Uh, whereas when you have a negative gamma position, you want to be long options in general, right? You want to play volatility. Mm-hmm. Um, and so your windows of how you want to do that, you know, can, can adjust based on how you want to trade. Um, but understanding where sort of the risk point is and the pivot point of where volatility may really jump, um, you know, can be very v- useful on really a whole bunch of different timeframes. And I would say that in general too, we have this view that there's a cycle that ties to the third Friday of every month because of that big options expiration. Um, mm-hmm. So like we just had kind of an unusual expiration this past Friday, wherein we calculated about one third of total gamma expired for the S and P and the NASDAQ. And so the idea is that that should really make things quite volatile this week. Um, but typically what happens is then volatility will contract into the monthly expiration. And then the cycle starts again, kind of, after that expiration. So you can choose to play options and, and trade, you know, around that cycle. Yeah. I mean, being a dealer myself, I can speak, uh, I was in the market and, you know, that's through that cycle. I mean, I used to always see a lot of, you know, people selling me volatility and selling mm. me call options, like struck close to the money or slightly to the upside. I'd get a load of gamma. If the market kind of slowly went up over the course of that month, my gamma position would explode. Mm. And then it would it would expire, and then that position would drop. But I'd be given extra as that position was expiring. I'd be getting sold stuff for the next month expiry. Right, we could be kind of replenishing that gamma, but not to the same extent. Right. But if the market did continue to grind up to those strikes over the following month, then again I'd get long gamma again, and that just kept happening every month. And like you say, if the market dropped a bit, then those call strikes that I was getting sold were too far away to have any gamma on them. And then I would be a lot less long gamma and the market would kind of be winging around a bit more. So exactly. I mean, I've been there. So I've definitely seen those flows and experienced those flows. So I very much agree. One thing I would ask as well, do you monitor, so the gamma that you expect the street has on any given underlying, do you kind of look at the ratio of that to daily volume of the underlying to help rank, Mm -hmm. to help rank which underlyings are being kind of, particularly driven by yeah. the gamma positioning and you're likely to see a realized volatility uptick or a pinning effect because relative to the normal daily volume is quite a large number. Yeah, you, you absolutely have to know how big the options position is relative to the underlying stock, right? Because at the end of the day, we're again, just trying to measure how much of an impact those hedging flows have. So if you have a small options position, uh, on a stock that's very liquid and trades several million shares a day, there's probably not going to be any impact, right? Uh, because those hedging flows are, you know, drops of water in the ocean. They just don't, you know, they don't, they're not going to have any influence or any impact. Uh, and that's kind of one of the interesting things that's happened about the weekly options, right? Is, is these names that get hot 
guys will come in and they'll just like jam on, on Monday or Tuesday. They'll, they'll flood into the expiration for this coming Friday. Uh, and you can see on that cycle that that flow or that volume will really matter on Monday and Tuesday and the stock will react to that. And then all of a sudden that, that volume kind of dries out, the options volume dries out and the stock kind of fades because, you know, the hedge that the options have decayed because uh, there's mm-hmm. such short dated options and, and the hedging flows decay with that. Uh, and the story sort of, you know, fades, the options, uh, uh, the yeah. options link kind of fades. It's, it's really interesting to watch. Must have, I mean, that's what we saw with the whole GameStop fiasco, right? That type of price action and that type of call buying that was very much driving what dealers had to do. I mean, okay, not to put you on the spot, but is there, right, we've got, what, two two weeks until the next expiry, the next next monthly. Is there, yeah. any, is there any stocks that are particularly on your radar where you can see there's some big open interest, there's some big strikes, and it's likely to have an impact given the daily volume of that stock? You know, come on, give us some, give us some uh, thoughts on that. <laughs> well, what I could tell you is that what we just had on this past Friday that expired, so this is more of sort of a real-time, Story and I haven't really checked the market uh, in the last you know hour here, but Tesla, for example, because a lot of these big uh, stocks just reported earnings, right? Apple, Amazon, Tesla, et cetera. So when they um, had this big expiration, we're in somewhere between 50, 30 to 50% roughly of, of gamma, depending on the names I mentioned, expired, right? So like Tesla pinned 700 in the Friday expiration and about 35 or 40% of total gamma in Tesla just expired that was pinned to that strike. So that pin, we think, is probably now gone. Uh, Apple had about 50% of its gamma just expire on Friday. So we think that 130 to 135 area, uh, that pin is probably gone now too, right? Because of these uh, big, you know, post-earnings expirations. Um, So those two names in particular have been sort of stuck to this range or tied to this strike. Uh, You know, the immediate strikes, uh, excuse me, for Friday's close, we think they're going to unpin now and really get some volatility uh, be, because those positions are gone. So, and you, so your intel is more that they're going to be less pinned, but not necessarily which direction they're going to go. They're just a bit freer to travel e- in either direction. Yeah, I mean, you know, so with speaking about Apple and Tesla in general, I mean, I think Apple is pretty much just like a stock index of its own. I mean, I think most people own Apple uh, for the long term, just as they own spiders, right? And they sell call options every single week. On mm-hmm. Apple, that's just sort of you do. Every Friday, you sell another, you know, sell another Apple call against your position, and so that name tends to be dominated more by call gamma and, and call volume, right? Whereas mm-hmm. Tesla right now is almost all puts. If you sort of look at the positioning that's around uh, Tesla, it's a lot of put options, and so it's put gamma that we're watching more. Uh, that's why a lot of times you see, I think Tesla start to sell off, and then on on Wednesday of the day uh, of the week. Tesla will kind of catch like a bid and it'll kind of fade back up. I call it like a fade back higher into these big put areas, right? Uh, whereas Apple tends to do the exact opposite thing, right? Apple will kind of move higher and then on Wednesday it fades back down into these big gamma strikes. Um, so what you can sort of glean is how is the options market weighing on these names, right? Because the, again, at Apple's so, such a big call position and Tesla's such a big put position, you, know, you, can, you can watch those dynamics play out. Um, a lot of times too, you'll see a name like, a, a Clovis is a big wall street bets name where people are buying calls in that. Um, and you can play the direction knowing that all of these calls are about to expire. Right. Uh, and Clovis, which is the stack that wall street bets really likes. If a lot of people are in there buying calls and those calls are all about to expire, 
Well, that probably means that there's a lot of dealer long hedges that are going to get removed, right? And so Monday would be more of a directional trade shorting that stock because that that gamma buying is is going to go away. And it's you know the delta the deltas that are were in place on Friday are, are now gone. So you know, but as a trader, I'd, I'd ask you if you sort of know uh, how that volatility dynamic is going to change. I mean, you, you can probably the, the direction doesn't necessarily you don't need to know need to know the direction, right? You can kind of structure your positions to, to yeah, lead a certain way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as a vol trader, yeah, agreed. You're you're kind of agnostic to the direction. But I, I guess another way of looking at it as well is if you are wait if you are biased and you want to buy or sell Apple or Tesla, you might want to wait until this big expiry goes away. And that because whilst you're waiting, obviously you're paying time decay, right? So if you're going to right. buy an option to reflect your directional view, you're going to pay up for that volatility and you're going to pay up that for that time decay. So if you know it's very likely to just kind of trade sideways into the expiry, you're going to wait until that expiry goes away and, and then you're going to buy your option after that weekend or wherever it may be to save a little bit of that time decay. And that right, trade. right. And, and that's, you know, that's a really good point because I think oftentimes we talk about volatility and, and people assume that means that the market's going to go down. They just have that in their mind that those two are linked. But volatility is just movement, like you said, you know, so if you know that there's a ton of gamma expiring on Friday and Tesla, well, why pay that five days of call to, you know, decay, even if you're betting on the stock going up, right. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that can be, and, and not only that, if you want to buy Tesla, right. And you know that there's a whole bunch of gamma that just expired on Friday and the stock is down, then maybe you have some insight into why the stock is down, right. There might not be news, uh, but it could just be this hedging flows and the dynamic, uh, you know, of those hedging flows that that's causing some weakness. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. And so, yeah, as we're kind of wrapping up, I mean, is it just equities and stocks that you analyze or have you got any plans to look at other asset classes maybe commodities maybe crypto even you know are, <laughs> you, are you thinking of expanding the uh what the positioning thing to other assets yeah definitely uh so commodity futures are something that we're looking at a lot of those underlying assumptions you know in oil and things that you know assumptions that we make in, in equities may not hold true to you know, gold and oil in particular with a lot of spreads trading there. So we're working on those models, but, you know, crypto is obviously a fascinating one, particularly Bitcoin because it's being institutionalized. And I think that means a lot of big options positions are going to come in. Uh, and then you can start to make some, again, some assumptions and some ideas about how those, uh, those options are being positioned. Um, and then not only that, you have, you know, the futures market here in the U.S. with Bitcoin, uh, which again, it allows institutions to come into that space. Uh, it makes the modeling, you know, a little bit uh, gives a little bit more truth to the models. I think uh, when you have that institutional flavor in there or, or institutional uh, positioning in there, uh, are, are yeah. you trading a lot of Bitcoin? Is that sort of the, the new area you're finding? Yeah, I mean, I've got involved a bit in the last year, um, certainly in Bitcoin and also in the options market in both Bitcoin and Ethereum. Um, and I think, yeah, the more people that go into the space, the the more the volumes in the options are going to increase. Um, because people, like you say, will have obvious trades to do against their holdings, right? Like I do. Right. All overwriting is probably the most common strategy in equities. And there's no reason why you wouldn't also do it in things like crypto. 
obviously, you know, you'd be careful about how much you do, or maybe you wouldn't do it in your full size because the reason you're in crypto in the first place is because it has such amazing upside to it. Mm. But to overwrite a part of that exposure at what are pretty juicy bowl levels in the often in the 90s or even above 100 is quite hard to resist. Um, yeah. and being, being a being a 20-year options trader, you know that more often than not, being on the short side of vol systematically is the right way to be. So if you have opportunities to systematically be short something on 100 vol, you'd be a bit mad not to take that, right? So Right, right. So, so how, how would you compare sort of the vol surface in general to that of equities? I mean, is there is there some similarities that you see there or is it? I mean, it's generally a little bit more similar to FX markets in the what mm-hmm. in the fact that it's more of a smile than a skew, mm-hmm. right? So in equities, you always have a skew for puts versus calls, right. um, which has been apparent forever, let's say, uh, because you've always got that call call selling flow and that put buying flow to protect portfolios. The thing about crypto was that a lot of people wanted access to the the upside in crypto, but mm-hmm. didn't have loads of capital to pile into it. Um, so they would just buy call options to get that participation. So there was this natural bid for calls that you don't really have in equities. Um, but then, you know, as more institutions come in and there is a bit more demand for people to call overwrite, that call wing has started to go back a bit and make the surface a bit more symmetrical. Mm-hmm. And then also because we get these 20, 30% crashes happen like randomly at the weekend and people want to be able to protect themselves for that then that brings a bit of demand to the put side as well. So it's starting to become a bit more balanced than what it was maybe three months ago, where it was very much the calls. But then if you look at Ethereum, Ethereum calls are super bid, yeah, because look what Ethereum is doing, right? It's breaking out on a relative basis, it's outperforming Bitcoin by like 20, 30% in the last few weeks. So people are getting a bit excited on the upside for Ethereum, and that's kind of still holding a bit of a call call bid, basically. So, so do, you, do you think that's that just because the notional value of Bitcoin is so much higher, and, and calls are probably just on, again on a notional basis so much more expensive that a lot of the retail market won't be trading those things, right? Because it ties back into someone I want to mention about equities, but in Ethereum, like a call option, just notionally is going to cost a lot less, right? An at-the-money call or whatever versus a Bitcoin call because it's a function of Bitcoin being at you know sixty thousand dollars versus uh, I forget what price Ethereum's at. Yeah, yes and no because the the retail platforms allow you to trade in quite small increments, right? So you can you can trade zero point one notional of a Bitcoin on like a Bitcoin option. Yeah, so you can put you don't have to trade a one lot, you can trade a 0.1 lot on, on something like Deribit Exchange, which is the, mm. the big retail exchange. So then you're looking at only a notional amount of five or six K. And then if you're buying an option, it's an even smaller amount. So retail retail can still get involved. So it's not, it's not, it's they they've obviously figured that out. They need to make it accessible to retail. So they couldn't have a minimum lot size of like one Bitcoin. It's just that, that wouldn't make right. sense. And the fact that all those exchanges are decentralized is is very interesting because uh, like what we saw in in these game of squeeze names over the summer like GameStop and the like is that is that the market makers after the first squeeze and after you know Build a Bear was you know going up uh, tenfold every day um, that they would that they just made the cost of options so expensive right the cost of buying calls the implied vol was so high that you just you couldn't afford the calls anymore right. Like, Tomorrow's at the money GameStop call was costing something like uh, you know twenty five or fifty bucks and it expired in in an hour, right? And no one could afford that anymore. Like just you know, Robinhood traders didn't have that kind of capital, and, and the risk was too high. Um, and so I, I feel like that's in Bitcoin, where 
because that upside convexity is there all the time, um, that, that the risk of vol just getting, you know, kind of jacked up, you know, so quickly, if you don't time your, your purchase right in, in Bitcoin calls in particular, you know, you could really just get punished from a volatility perspective. Yeah, I mean, it is pretty explosive, that volatility. But like I say, the market's got used to it, right? It's yeah. not like that volatility has been there since 2017, right? Uh, now, the options market wasn't quite as liquid, but now the options market is a lot more liquid. And what amazes me is, you know, I've, I've got friends who still trade in equities, uh, in equity derivatives, for example, and they trade single stocks in Europe. And what amazes me is that the liquidity in Bitcoin options on a weekend, when Bitcoin has dropped 20%, the bid offer spread in volatility terms in Bitcoin is, is tighter really? than you'll get in a lot of European single stocks <laughs> during the week in a, on a normal day where nothing, norm, nothing abnormal is going on. I mean, that says a lot about the liquidity and how that market has matured, right? So, that's, you know, that's it's an amazing thing. It is, it is amazing, but it's true. Anyway, look, it's been great speaking to you. It's been super insightful for me to see how you guys really quantify positioning within the options market to try and really understand what's going on in dealers' books and how it's being impacted. I think it's something that's really getting more and more important for people to understand as the options market is, is exploding in, in interest and in activity. I think what you guys are doing is fantastic. Um, and I guess, you know, the last thing is, you know, how can people learn more about what you do and what your models are saying? Sure. So uh, spotgamma.com is our, is our website and I'm uh, at spotgamma on Twitter. So you can reach me uh, through uh, through Twitter or through our website. Uh, and, and we have some presence on YouTube as well. So um, any of those channels are great. And, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and I had a great time. Pleasure. Thanks for coming. Thanks, everyone. Cheers. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lipsandads.com now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com